Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st. United We Brew. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. A, a genetic tool offers the way to really turn the knobs. You know, we need tools, we need success stories to help deal with these incredible stresses, be it the floods or the heat domes or the diseases that are in the news, you know, headline news all the time now. This week on the show, gene editing for brewers and where things might be headed for barley and hops. Hi, this is Tom Schulhammer, professor at Oregon State University. I study hops, I study beer and anything about um, science. Hi, my name is Steve Strauss. I'm a professor at Oregon State University, and I study uh, genetics of crops, of trees, and of hops. Today, we're talking about gene editing, a topic of which I know very little, but that's okay. I have a lot of experience editing podcasts, where my job is to chop out the guest's ums, cut any confusing or slow dialogue, and often move things around to tell a story that I think will make more sense to listeners. How does that compare to the process of gene editing? It's uh, gene editing is probably not as uh, powerful as your editing is right now, John, in terms of doing whatever the heck you want of moving things forwards and backwards and all around. What's really powerful about it is that, you know, when you want to make a genetic change to an organism, like we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years, uh, usually it's through, you know, making crosses or just looking what nature gave us sort of randomly. And now with knowledge of science, the knowledge of what genes do and which ones lead to certain flavors or or disease resistance, we can go in and target those genes and change them and uh, in a precise way. And that's what's amazing that we couldn't do for the last 10,000 years that we've now been doing for about a decade. How does that differ from production of a GMO or a genetically modified organism? You know, there's a lot of overlap out there because uh, uh, there's also the regulatory layer and there's a consumer layer of when are you on uh, on the side of GMO and when are you on the side of sort of clean editing, which at least in many countries, not all of them are not regulated in any, in any special way that's just like conventional breeding. And a lot of times you want to edit with some sort of guidance to what's going to happen 
It's not just, you know, randomly changing a gene. And that's kind of blurry in terms of whether that's considered GMO or not. It depends on the, the specifics. So what's the difference between terms like gene editing and genetic modification or genetically engineered? You know, it's pretty confusing out there. Even scientists use it in different ways. Uh, uh, so genetic modification in a lot of the world, particularly in Europe, is the term they use for genetic engineering, meaning you've used these recombinant DNA methods at some point, you've taken the DNA out of the organism, you've studied it, you've maybe modified it, and you've put it back in to change a gene that's there or to add a new gene. So in Europe uh, and other places, GM, genetic modification, means that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, in the U.S., most scientists, at least, don't like that because that connotes that things are not modified uh, previously. And as you may know, you know, corn, as we eat it and sort of doesn't exist in nature. We've really made this incredible o organism with these giant co cobs. That's a human creation. So we don't like to connote that things are not modified already. Uh, the term biotech is used in some cases for both of those things, in some cases for just tissue culture, propagation, growing things. So you really got to be clear on what the terms mean, depending on who you're talking to and, and what's going on. And there's a lot of more specific terms like transgenic and cisgenic and intragenic that have even finer connotations where you just got to make sure who's ever talking uh, uh, what they mean when they, when they use the terms. Is that sort of a key differentiator between uh, gene editing and, uh, and a GMO where you, uh, you would still use that term transgenic? So if, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I believe that's where you basically take a gene from, you know, one organism and you put it into another. So we take a gene from an elephant and we put it into, you know, some, something else that's not an elephant, right? Um, is that sort of one of the things that sort of, you know, checks the box of this is a GMO rather than just a, a, what you referred to earlier as a clean edit? Yeah. Any DNA that's been put into the organism, whether it's two base pairs or an entire gene, whether it comes from another crop plant or whether it comes from an entirely different organism like an elephant or like a bacterium uh, would be called transgenic or GMO. So it's really anything in there, uh, whether it's a whole functioning gene, whether it's from far away or whether it's from nearby would be called transgenic. When you just make a, a, a mutation to what's already there, and most of gene editing is about doing that, then that wouldn't be called transgenic. Because that could have just happened anyway, right? Could have happened anyway, but it may be really hard to do. It may take looking for a needle in a haystack and cost millions of dollars or be essentially impossible. But with gene editing, you can make it happen very specifically and very, very efficiently. Yeah, or maybe it would have just taken 20,000 years, but we're going to do it now. Exactly. Correct. Can I hop in here for? I got a question to, to Steve. So, like, what happens if you use like in a synthetic biology approach and you actually create, build your own gene? Um, you're not actually cutting and transporting something from another organism, but you understand yeah. uh, the the basis of what you want to accomplish from, um, let's say, a, a protein expression, and so you build a you know a sequence that that will do that. Where, yeah. how, how, where does that fall? All, all that stuff, Tom, would be called uh, transgenic or GMO, coming from another place, not from within the organism. Sure. Uh, yeah, but that's exactly right. Yep. And there's, there's a lot more interest in doing that. As we understand the science of it, we want to design, just like engineers design buildings and bridges. They don't take a bridge from China and bring it to the U.S. They create a new bridge based on knowledge of science and material chemistry and physics. And more and more, we want to do that in biology as well. Describe what editing plant genes actually looks like. I understand you use a, a gene gun, which sounds like something that could be science fiction. How do you explain this process to someone who doesn't have an advanced science degree? Yeah, you know, the uh, upfront, the processes of making a GMO and making a gene edit are very, very similar in that you simply, you've got to create DNA or extract DNA that has characteristics that you want to impart to your organism. So you have DNA in a test tube. Uh, it could be a protein uh, made from DNA in a test tube. People do that as well. And then you have to get it into cells somehow. 
to do the work they're going to do and changing the DNA of the, of the target organism, say it be hops. So you got to get it in and that's getting it through the cell wall and getting it through the membrane and doing it in a way that won't damage the cell where it dies. So that's all pretty tricky, crafty kind of stuff, getting it in. And that's why sometimes people use a gene gun, where you literally put a little bit of the DNA on a, a gold or a tungsten particle. Uh, you, you precipitate it onto there, and then you shoot it in with high-pressure uh, helium or, or other methods. And then you have plant tissues that have new DNA in their cells, and you kind of try to regenerate them into plants. And so that getting them in and then regenerating a, a new organism from those cells, those are the key parts of either GMO or gene edit. With, with gene editing, the stuff you're putting in, the design is you put it in there and you want it to change something else that's already in the genome. So the goal is not the gene you put in. The goal is something else that you want to change. It could be a gene that, uh, that controls the flavor of the hops. It could control a, a biochemical that's naturally there to make it a little different. With the GMO, the gene itself that you're putting in is what's of interest. It's conferring a new property. It's, it's making a new protein. But again, you got to get it in and then you got to regenerate a plant. And then if you want a clean gene edit, as they say, uh, you don't want the, the gene you put in to be there. You just want the, the change to be there. You got to get rid of that stuff. And either it'll go away naturally over time as the plant grows, if it doesn't get incorporated into the genome, uh, or you take the progeny. And when you do this, I know this is getting a little technical, when you uh, have a gene edited uh, organism, which also has the gene editor, the CRISPR in it, if you take the progeny of it, half of them won't have the CRISPR anymore. So now you have the half that has the edit, the other half that has the CRISPR. You don't care if it has the edit or not. And then you breed further. And then you have a clean gene edit uh, in the next generation. That's cool. No, that was actually, you actually kind of answered uh, something else I was going to ask you, but I was going to ask you if the, if the changes that are introduced through gene editing, uh, if they're heritable, in other words, do they become part of that evolutionary process of the plant, you know, going forward for infinity. And it sounds like the answer to that question is maybe. It should be. That's, that's generally what you want. You want it to be heritable. You want it to be stable. So if you take the progeny and you propagate it just like through normal means and you want to plant a hop, a hop yard, every plant is going to have the exact same edit and have the new change in properties. So yeah, it should be genetically heritable and vegetatively heritable as you make copies. Okay. Now let's continue in the hop world, what, you know, where your world and Tom, Tom's world intersect here. So I know in Providence, you mentioned something about that this last step, this, the regeneration of a modified cell being sort of the trickiest part of the whole process. Um, and I think you mentioned that that's sort of a current hangup in, in hops at this point. Do you want to talk about that now, or maybe we should do that later on? Yeah, as you like, you know, the, uh, uh, John, the, the process of getting DNA into cells is pretty routine now. We have this thing, agrobacterium, which is truly a natural genetic engineer. It's, it's uh, put its genes into hops millions of years ago. We've sequenced the hop genome. We know, we know it's there. We know agrobacterium has been a host of uh, uh, hops has been a host of it for a long, long time. So we can use that technique, and it's the most common technique throughout the entire plant kingdom to get genes in pretty efficiently. So we don't really need a gene gun in hops. And we can see it. We have these uh, jellyfish genes we use just for research that when you get the DNA in and it's working, the cells literally glow under the microscope. It's, it's mm. truly remarkable. So we know we can do that, and we've done that really efficiently already in our lab with hops. But then when it gets to coaxing those things to turn back into a nice hop plant, uh, we can get little hop plants back, but most of the time they don't have the new gene in them because it's kind of one in a million. You, it's really hard to get the regenerable cells, the cells that have what, what scientists call totipotency, the ability for that cell to make a whole new organism, to re-differentiate. It's hard to get, the, to get both the, the transform, the modified cells, and the, the, the re, regenerable cells to be the same cell. That's, so it has to be a very efficient process for that to happen. And that's, we're sort of tweaking a lot of things to make that happen. But uh, over time, it certainly will happen. 
And that's that's not a unique challenge to hops. I mean, that's got to be a problem and for not lots of different plants, right? And are, are there yeah. other plants where folks have kind of really, you know, cracked that nut? Um, in, 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 you know, obviously, I'm sure you'd be able to glean some things from what works in other uh, plants as well. You know, the uh, the gene gum was was created at Cornell uh, uh, 20 or 30 years ago because woody plants used to be really, really hard to genetically engineer. Um, and over time, we've learned for most woody plants how to do it with agrobacterium. But woody plants in general that I, I work on most of the time, uh, hops are not my main focus. I work on, so hops, hops are woody plants, as you know. I work on trees, poplar trees, eucalyptus trees, sweet gum trees, and they're very difficult. All of the monocots, the rices, the corn, wheat used to be exceedingly difficult. And over time, people have figured it out through research, but it takes a sustained effort. And in hops, there's been, you know, if you look around the globe, there's just been, you know, really less than uh, a handful of labs working on this over the years. So we're far behind. We have a long way to go to catch up, but I'm sure we can if we sustain the effort. Cool. Tom, you want to add anything to that? Well, I'm just curious to know, like, the relative ease of making genetic modifications to Saccharomyces versus to um, <laughs> a plant. It seems like you know, we see a lot of, of activity going on in the yeast space. And is part of that because it's easier to accomplish? Yeah, no, no question about it, Tom. Yeast is far, far easier. If I was an expert in yeast, uh, I, I might be uh, informed by somebody that some species and varieties are much easier than others because that's the rule in plants. You might have one genotype be really easy. The next genotype is impossible. So I don't know, you know if that's the case in, in, in yeast or not. But I do know that brewer's yeast has been something people have been genetically modifying and gene editing intensively for the last five or 10 years with great success. And because yeast has also been one of the model systems for fundamental biology, there's just a tremendous science toolkit that they have to to modify uh, DNA in all kinds of different ways. So that's really helped the uh, the brewing effort to sort of build on top of that. But yeah, I'm very jealous of what they can do in yeast. <laughs> <laughs> so GE is already happening all around us, right? The train has totally left the station. You know, it's really it's really a, a, a messy a messy picture. You know, in some ways, it's very much left the station. You know, 95% of the soy and all the soy products that are in pretty much everything else, and about a similar number for corn, for cotton, for canola, some of the really big commodity crops are in the, in the United States and certain South American countries are almost completely genetically modified versions. In other places, it's not allowed at all. In the European Union, with the exception of Spain and just a tiny bit of activity there, pretty much farmers are not allowed to grow this stuff. Um, there's so much public pushback. Similar thing in Japan, some other European countries in Brazil there and Argentina, there's lots of it in Chile. Uh, commercially, there's essentially none of it. So you have this real kind of a uh, complicated picture around the world. And even in the USA, where we have these major commodity crops that are modified, there's lots of other crops like the vegetable crops that are not at all. And that's, you know, thought to be mainly due to consumer unease with whether it's going to be acceptable when something, when you're not consuming it directly, but it's going into animal feed or it's going into soy meal that gets incorporated and it's not directly visible, uh, companies are less concerned about consumer pushback. So you have a, a lot of stuff, even in the United States, that's not modified and companies are very cautious. There was there were some projects in Oregon about 20 years ago. So in Oregon, we, we grow potatoes as well as lots of other things. And the potatoes have huge problems with uh, insects and viral diseases. And Monsanto came, came up with some amazing solutions that would have cut down the use of pesticides and increased productivity. But McDonald's and the other fast food companies just wouldn't take those in their French fries because they were afraid of consumer pushback. So all that stuff was kind of ended. And even now, we're just starting to modify potatoes again. Simplot uh, Plant Sciences has been doing it, but it's still ha it's going along very slowly and cautiously because of this concern about consumer pushback. 
So you have kind of this uh, somewhat schizophrenic thing going on in the USA and around the world. All right. I want to get more into the regulatory stuff here in a few minutes. But um, first, um, one question I have for you is, can we distinguish uh, a plant that has been gene edited from a plant that was bred conventionally? Or is it going to look just the same to us? Uh, you know, the it would be pretty nerdy. You'd need to have a laboratory to figure it out. You know, with a lot of the, uh, tr- the transgenic plants, they have actually uh, dip strips where you can test to see if the new protein is there. And people use this commercially all the time to sort of say, you know, is this GMO or non-GMO soy? So if you want to have a non-GMO product or an organic product, they often test it to make sure that it's not GMO. When you have an edit where you haven't added an entirely new protein, it's much harder to detect it. You'd have to actually go in and look at the sequence. And as, you're, as I think you're implying, sometimes those changes look the same as natural changes that might exist. So it can be kind of confusing. And one of the points of controversy around the world is, yeah, it's nice that in gene editing, you're just making uh, changes to the sort of natural-like changes similar to breeding, but then it's much harder to track where it is. And for countries and consumers that don't want anything like this, like in the European Union, how are they going to track it and check? It's, It's much trickier. So, uh, so gene editing is, you know, generally consumers like it more, but it creates some of these regulatory problems. Tell us more about this, the, the relationship between GE and traditional breeding. An important point, and a lot of molecular biologists, bless their heart, uh, you know, don't understand conventional breeding and its complexity and power. And so breeding is, is an amazing thing and that you're usually screening for, uh, you know, dozens of traits at once. And, you're, and, and most of these traits are the result of thousands of genes interacting in a very complicated way. And through gene editing or genetic engineering, we don't have the power and knowledge and probably never will to really sort of shape an organism given all that complexity. So we need conventional breeding to be healthy and rapid and and dynamic. And we don't want to do anything with gene editing that's going to sort of really disrupt conventional breeding. We want it to add to, not be an alternative to or a disruptor. In in biotech and gene editing or or genetic engineering, we tend to want to make sort of qualitative changes, something that uh, uh, where the, the, the genetic changes will have a pretty marked effect with just a few genes or even a single gene. And that might be an example, might be uh, creating a new chemical or, or enhancing the amount of a chemical that's already there to give hops a special flavor. That would be an example of a gene editor, a biotech innovation, which we then want to incorporate into conventional breeding populations. Another example might be to add a gene for drought tolerance, like they've done in wheat now in Argentina, that elevates the general level of drought tolerance that then conventional breeders use to sort of add to other sources of drought tolerance they have. So that's kind of the connection. You have to have both going on and they have to be highly compatible. And if you don't have a pretty efficient gene editing GMO system, if it's really hard and difficult, like we were talking about, like it is now for hops, you're, you're only going to have one or two varieties that you've modified, whereas you really want to be able to modify many, many varieties to change a trait. So uh, in that case, uh, um, a biotech gene editing or genetic engineering might slow down conventional breeding or be a distraction, and we don't want that. So we really want to elevate this sort of the efficiency of editing and breeding so we can sort of get the best of both worlds. So going back to like hops and barley then, you know, what we've had, and we've had, you know, Pat Hayes on the show and some others that are, that, you know, focus their, their careers are focused on breeding. How has, or how will GE accelerate that typical, you know, 10 to 15 year breeding timeline that we often hear about for barley or for hops? Well, you know, one way you can do it is you can take a conventionally bred variety like a a clone of hops, be it citra or whatever it might be, that's really great and people like it and companies know how to make great beer with it, but it's disease resistant. Maybe a new disease comes along or we learn as climate's changing that it's, it's sensitive to really high temperatures. 
And we, in fact, saw some of that, I think, in fact, with Citra uh, two years ago uh, in the Northwest, where there, it was very, very sensitive to our heat dome. And so can then you, you can, with gene editing or genetic engineering, keep the sort of the clonal integrity, the basic characteristics of the hop the same, but then kind of mend this one deficiency or modify the flavor in a specific way while keeping everything else about the hops the same. And that's actually been done with apples. You may, you may know there is a sort of a slow to brown apple that's been produced and is on the market that uh, you have the same varieties of apple uh, uh, that we had before. They taste the same. But now when you cut them and put them on a table, they don't brown in 10 minutes. They, they really stay white and crispy for 24 hours. It's quite amazing. So you really just change this one trait in a conventional variety. So that's the way you would speed up. You, you wouldn't have to go take 15 years to add in new genes and do all the sorting. You could do that in a year or two. And of course, you need to test it again. So it's not going to be you know, a few months. It's going to be a few years, but it wouldn't be 15 years. And you gave at the summit. You gave the example of papaya as a as a, a yep. another a plant where this has basically already happened. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, the papaya is an a, a ama- amazing story, really, because uh, it's it's one of these things where serendipity and a lot of things in science happen due to serendipity. Something comes along at the right time, and the scientists sort of didn't quite know what they were doing, and and got lucky. So the scientist, uh, Dennis Consalves uh, at Cornell, uh, and he's a Hawaiian man and was very, uh, very aware of what was going on in Hawaii with the ring spot virus, that it was starting to devastate the industry and there's really no fix for it. And the industry was going to go away. And at the same time, he was working on, he was taking DNA from the, the ring spot virus and inserting it transgenically into the papaya to see that maybe if you had a version of the coat protein of the virus that was kind of abnormal, that the virus wouldn't work uh, uh, correctly. Turns out the, uh, the little bit of DNA <clears throat> he put in acted like an antigen, kind of like a vaccine, in that it sort, of war- it sort of trained the plant to get ready to destroy the virus when it came in later. Wow. So at the time, he didn't know he was doing that. We, he found out he did that about 10 years later, that he, he turned on this system called RNA interference, which is the, you know, uh, the basis of, of all kinds of vaccines and innovations right now. It got a Nobel Prize when folks figured it out. But he kind of backed into it and, and produced these, uh, these, these new varieties of papaya that looked and tasted exactly the same as the previous varieties, but now were virus resistant and really saved the industry. Coming up, it's already happening on the on the yeast side, and it can happen on the uh, on the on the hop and barley side if we if we choose to. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is brought to you by Rar Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, 
Rar Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. RAR can help your brewery maintain quality and consistency. The RAR Technical Center provides testing and analytical expertise on barley, malt, beer, and other fermented beverages and ingredients. For more information on these lab services, please visit bsgcraftbrewing.com. Are you looking to diversify your portfolio to include non-alcoholic beer or hard seltzer? You can do both with Alpha Laval's low-alk and de-alk technologies. Whether through membrane filtration or vacuum stripping, Alpha Laval's innovative solutions are designed to provide gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages so your customers can experience the best that your brand has to offer. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northwest meets in Olympia October 21st and 22nd. District Georgia meets at Round Trip Brewing in Atlanta, October 22nd. District Eastern Canada has a webinar on the best practices in dry hopping October 25th. The District Midwest Technical Conference is October 28th and 29th. District Philly meets November 4th and 5th at the Wyndham in Old City. District Great Plains meets November 11th and 12th at Free State Brewing in Lawrence. District Rocky Mountain meets November 12th in Glenwood Springs. District Milwaukee meets November 17th at Sunshine Brewing Company in Lake Mills. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. You, you mentioned earlier about some of the differences of perception in different countries. Um, do regulators view gene editing the same as GMO? You know, it's, it's gene editing really blurs the distinction between conventional breeding and normal GMO type biotechnology in conventional breeding where, you know, we're working with the DNA that's there. Every now and then we decide the DNA that's there doesn't have the diversity we need. So we irradiate them or we use chemical mutagens to create more mutations. That's kind of a rare thing. But, you know, apart from that, you know, which people do use, but uh, it, it's, you know, probably 1% or something. We're mainly dealing with the diversity that's there, and we're trying to sort through it and package it. And with gene editing, what we're doing is saying, hey, we want to make a slight mutation, a change. That's kind of what nature does. It makes mutations, but it makes them randomly. And based on science, we might know what we want to do, and we want to go make it specifically, not have to have to sort through millions and millions of mutations to find the right thing. So it's kind of blurred the difference. It's really kind of science-informed breeding. And so how do you regulate that, given that throughout the world, conventional, what we call conventional breeding, including irradiation, is not regulated by the government, basically. They, bas they say, well, that's safe. We've been doing that for 10,000 years. We're not going to require specialized tests, and we're not going to penalize you if you release it into the environment or into the food supply without, uh, without informing us. So we have this big distinction between GMO, where we have these very strict rules really throughout the world, and we have conventional breeding where we have almost no rules. Uh, and so what do we do? And the world's struggling with trying to figure out what to do about that. And in Europe so far, and there's a lot of controversy about it, they've decided that gene editing is just, is just another type of GMO. It's regulated exactly the same way. And those barriers are very, very high. The regulatory barriers, the market barriers are huge. So gene editing in the EU may be apart from Britain which is now because of uh, uh, Brexit, they're developing separate regulations that are a little more, in my opinion, science 
based. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, people are trying to figure out where gene editing fits. And a lot of kind of like what Tom talked about with respect to synthetic biology, you know, as science proceeds, we don't want to make just one mutation. Science can think of five different things or 10 different things that might improve the crop, whether it be heat tolerance or disease resistance or, you know, or food quality or flavor. They want to do a lot of different things. And right now around the world, if you do more than a very simple edit, it's basically considered GMO anyway. So I think we're going to end up having to come back to our entire biotech regulatory system. And, and reform it, make it smarter, make it more science-based. And people are trying to figure out how to do that. And it's hard work. And, and part of the hard work, in addition to the complexity of the science, it's hard work because there is a lot of entrenched public perception that GMOs are somehow bad or dangerous. And those perceptions exist in the USA as well. It's not just in Europe. So it's going to be a hard road. I, I may not have this right, but I believe in, at the summit you said that uh, Europe has a, maybe a single body that oversees it, whereas in the U.S. it's sort of a, a cooperation between several different agencies. Yeah, that's right. In the in the U.S., biotech regulations came in under the Reagan administration. There was a pretty sort of anti-regulatory sense that regulations get in the way of commerce and innovation. And, and so they said, hey, we already have really robust food safety regulations that the FDA does. And they don't care about how you do it. They care that the food is safe at the end. So why shouldn't that be true of biotech? So they said FDA is going to you know, keep doing what they're doing uh, by worrying about the safety of the final product. Likewise, we have the EPA that mainly worries about the safety of things like pesticides. And so if we do make a GMO form of a pesticide, which we've done, whether the crop makes it or whether you spray it on the plant, they're already charged with making sure those are extremely safe through all the different tests that they do. So they're going to do the ones that are pesticide-like. And, and, and the USDA is already charged with plant pests of agriculture, things like weeds and diseases that harm it. So if you create a GMO crop, which is now pest-resistant, why can't they be the ones to make sure that you haven't uh, created more of a hazard than a help? So we have this coordinated framework among the three agencies. And then in the realm of uh, alcoholic beverages, we have other regulations as well. Uh, they have the TTB for, for beer, exa for example. So we have these more decentralized systems that have different systems depending on different traits. And scientists in general say, you know, it really depends on the trait. There's nothing inherently good or bad about a technology, any technology, including biotech or gene editing. It's how you use it and what you know about its safety and risk versus benefit. So that's the way to do it. So I, I think the USA is sort of out ahead of Europe, in my own opinion, in that regard, and that it doesn't stigmatize the method as much. Although when you look at the details, the method does matter. So, for example, uh, the EPA presumes a pest-resistant plant made with GMO techniques, including gene editing, is harmful until proven safe. Whereas with conventional breeding, it, it, it doesn't have any such assumption. So it's still got barriers based on methods, but it's not as severe as it is in Europe. And I know this is rather complicated, but that's, that's the nature of regulations. They're darn complicated. Yeah, that's right. Um, all right. Yep. Um, all those lawyers, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like we got sidetracked a few questions ago talking about the uh, traditional breeding timeline and how or if GE has an impact there. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, so... The the question of whether people often talk about and scientists often talk about that breeding is really slow. We have climate change. We have other challenges that we really want to accelerate things and GE is going to help us do it faster. And, and will it really do it faster? It depends. If we have all these regulatory and social barriers and, and added costs, that certainly is going to slow things down. Um, if we're making a pretty major change to our organism, like if we make something drought tolerant, well, drought tolerance is a, is a really complicated trait. You know, drought is different every year. Drought combined with heat, 
drought combined with cold, drought in one variety of hot versus another. If you make a, a more complicated trait like drought tolerance through uh, gene editing or genetic engineering, that really is going to require the same kind of testing period as you would be going through in conventional breeding. I, I don't think it's going to be a shortcut, at least not the first couple of times you do it. If you do a relatively simple trait, like I, I learned at the uh, brewing meeting, that once you harvest hops, things happen to them in storage, and keeping them fresh and tasty is a challenge. So if you put in a trait that slowed down the sort of uh, over-ripening process, kind of like what I was talking about in apples, where putting in a single gene slows down the browning and keeps them fresher longer, maybe that simple trait in hops would not require 15 years to evaluate it. You could evaluate it in a year to see if it's working or not. So then it would be quicker. The other thing that people have done in apples and cherries and prunes is put in a gene to actually speed up flowering. So you can get flowering and start making crosses in six or nine months, whereas uh, in different hop varieties, it may take you two or three years until you get sexual maturity. So it can speed up conventional breeding that way. But anyway, that's, uh, again, a, a sort of a complicated answer, but it's not necessarily clear that uh, uh, biotech gene editing will speed up the breeding process. It depends on the trait. It seems like the, the, the power in this is to provide a greater diversity or maybe precision in terms of what sort of changes you want, as opposed to using a parental population and just you know, the, the recombination genetics to, to yeah. get what you want. But the time frame is potentially the same. It's just that you're, yeah. you're a little bit more precise and strategic about what changes you want to make as a plant breeder. Yeah, and the, and the other key point about that, Tom, is that if you do want to add a, a trait or two to improve a variety, uh, you do it through sexual, through crosses, through sexual recombination, and that variety is lost, basically. It's through recom. You shuffled the deck, as it were. You might want one new card or a modified card, but to get it, you've had to shuffle the deck by by engaging in sexual recombination. So with gene editing, you can get in there and change one thing, uh, swap one card for another, uh, get one card out of the deck by turning off a gene, for example, without having to shuffle everything. So that's one way that it's definitely faster if the changes you want are pretty specific and well understood. What do you think the prospects are for gene editing to help make agriculture, not just hops, but agriculture more sustainable? So when I, uh, when I think about that, we have about 20 years of experience now with respect to uh, genetic engineering and agriculture. And the, the two most widely used traits, one is insect resistance and one is herbicide resistance. And herbicide resistance is something that tends to make it easier to control weeds. So farmers need to till less than they did previously. And tillage is probably the single most environmentally destructive thing we do in agriculture. So that's one way that, and there's a lot of data on this, that uh, that, that particular trait has made large-scale commodity agriculture more sustainable. It's not a, a panacea. It doesn't you know, solve every problem, but that is the record. The other one is insect resistance, where we know that uh, insect-resistant crops generally require less uh, use of pesticides or less toxic pesticides to control insects, and that would also be considered more sustainable. I, I don't know if, if there's situations in hops like papaya where you are actually threatening an entire industry? Can you sustain the industry at all in, in Hawaii or other places due to a disease? You have a, a genetically engineered trait, and now you have a healthy crop. The industry is sustained. So those are three examples of the kinds of impacts you can have. Can you create a level of drought and heat resistance that's large enough to make a difference given the immensity of What's happening with climate change? Can you do it fast enough to matter? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that, but that would be another example of helping to sustain an industry if we can get there fast enough. And, you know, one of the challenges in hops in particular, you know, unlike 
corn or soybeans that are multi-billion dollar, probably trillion dollar crops, hops are relatively small uh, by, by comparison. Our companies, is the public sector willing to make the investments needed to get the science to where it needs to be to produce these things? So that's perhaps the biggest question in terms of will this technology be useful in promoting economic value and sustainability? I think there'd probably be a lot of money on the table if um, if the entire hop industry was was threatened and and that filtered down to consumers who realized that you know beer was in jeopardy. I think that <laughs> yeah, might be some, I would some agree. fun for that. Would work for me. Yeah, I would. I would think though that you know the 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 disease pressure on hops. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not a plant scientist, but just in looking at that crop versus some other crops, um, depending upon where hops are grown and what varieties, they can require a heck of a lot of inputs um, from a, you know, just chemical applications to try to keep fungal diseases at bay. And so that presents, I think, some opportunities if there's a genetic approach to providing increased fungal disease resistance. Uh, and it could be, I'm, I'm using fungal disease, but it could be other diseases as well. Then you know, the when the backside is like you have you have less chemical inputs, you have less um, time that that farmers are putting tractors into the field. You have less, you know, we talked about tillage, you have less soil compaction. I think there's kind of these ripple effects that that um, a, a genetic breakthrough in terms of providing a plant-based disease resistance could have maybe not transformative, but it's certainly a significant impact in terms of the the sustainability of that crop. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Tom. And some of uh, our collaborators, you know, are working on just that, how to come up with a gene editor or a, a transgenic way to make hops in general more disease resistant, whether it be to fungal or combined diseases. And that could make a huge difference, particularly if we do, can develop a pretty efficient means to put the genes in. And if the regulatory side doesn't prove to be too onerous to, uh, to, get, the, to get the crop to market. Yeah, well, what will be interesting to see is what happens as EU re regulations tighten up in terms of what sort of uh, chemical applications are allowed on hops, certainly for, yeah. for import. Um, you know, whether if there, if there isn't any movement in terms of accepting uh, genetic GE approaches to to getting that resistance, and the EU starts taking a large number of the different chemical treatments off the table. Um, that has the potential to be a little bit like the papaya um, situation, right? If the if these pops are suffering from these types of diseases, and and the EU limits what can be imported actually into Europe because of residual chemical. Um, well, chemical residues and lack of GE um, options. That could be, you know, potentially a situation where European farmers or European brewers are limited in terms of the the, the hops that they have available to them. It'd be very interesting because uh, you know the EU does import a lot of uh, GMO crop materials like GMO soy. To, for animal feed into Europe, uh, I don't think I don't think they they import much for direct consumption by European consumers. But in the case of hops, which is sort of an, an you know additive used to make beer, and of course beer has special properties, maybe special regulations. <clears throat> One can see that uh, importing GE hops being something that uh, GE when I say GE gene edited or genetically engineered, you could imagine that happening, particularly if you say. As you say, their, uh, their rules about chemical residues get so strong they can't get the hops they need otherwise. Right. Yeah. Tom, I'm, I'm interested to hear sort of, you know, uh, in your opinion, as someone who is very involved with hop chemistry and flavor compounds and things like that, you know, what, do you, what, do you, what gets you excited about the, the opportunities in that realm of, of flavor and aroma implications for hops? Oh, I think that the a, a genetic tool offers the way to really turn the knobs uh, to you know, th you know bring the ampli amplifier up to eleven, so to speak. In some cases, uh, the 
the process of conventional breeding to find new aroma varieties is such a brute force method of of making crosses and deceiving through you know tens of thousands of of seedlings to try to find something that that works and so i think if if we can understand the drivers of hop aroma we might be able to rather easily manipulate that from uh, you know, a point of, that was this perceptible by the brewer. And, and right, I'm seeing this now with the GE yeast, that yeast, uh, that hops uh, and barley have a fair amount of these aroma precursors that are non-volatile, but can be released with the right um, enzyme system. And so there's a, a handful of yeast companies that are producing yeast that can really crank out the the level of or you know bump the level of free thiols in beer using this large pool of bound thiols that are in the hops and i I think the same thing is analogous on the plant side that there may be the way to to actually get some of these compounds released by the plant themselves yeah and then i think that's a great great point tom and in the short term the really powerful thing about gene editing is just to probe the chemistry by probing the genome, you know, so we have genome sequences out there. We have a very good genome for Cascade, I think it is, where we can go uh, edit. We can knock out or knock up. Those are the terms that are used. Particular genes in these uh, uh, biosynthetic pathways Tom is talking about to see how they change flavor, how they change chemistry. So, you know, with five or 10 years of doing that to to, to test all kinds of ideas there's no question in my mind some something will come out of that that's really uh delicious interesting and safe that we that 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 we would then want to use to make some interesting novel beers yeah that's a really good point just using this not so much as the end product but as a tool to get to the end quicker yeah i see kind of the same thing on on the yeast side that the the ability to have to, to use yeast that can really um display high thiol conversion allows brewers uh, and plant scientists to understand what's happening upstream in terms of the 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 metabolism of these precursors and and also just how the plant produces those precursors and what sort of systems during brewing or cellaring that could could enhance the availability of these precursors so there's some really interesting learning tools using these um, GE yeast and, and GE plants. So Tom, what do you think, uh, like, let's assume like all the, you know, the heat stress and the mildews and all that is table stakes and stuff that we want to go after anyway, but what would, what would you consider to be like a high value target and hops from a flavor and, and aroma standpoint? Well, I mean, right now there's a lot of attention placed on thiols because thiols are such potent compounds. Um, I think that, that I mean, I, in this case, a little could go a long way, uh, and you could actually get yourself into a spot where it's things are so intensely thiol that they become unpleasant. But I think the these compounds having such low detection thresholds and and having such signature impactful uh, features on 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 beer flavor, I think that's an area that is like a. a low-hanging fruit so to speak the terpene part i mean i think there's there's opportunities there as well um but the the when i think of the beer flavor um we don't have to focus and probably should not focus just on singular classes of compounds or certainly singular compounds because what we see in terms of hoppy flavor in beer is that it's really an amalgam of these different components and also the interaction with the uh, other components that yeast are producing, like for instance esters, that that what we get from a hoppy beer is not just the extraction of hop flavor into beer, but the hop the extraction and then transformation and then juxtaposition with yeast derived flavors. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because I, I think I think back to the f- first episode we did years ago. Now at this point, with with Charles Denby when they first released the the very first strain that was producing um, geranium and and linalool, yep. I believe. Mm-hmm. And you know uh, the early, I mean, it was amazing that they did that. Of course, the uh, but one of the early criticisms as well. Oh, well, this is sort of a one dimensional. It's it's not you know the complexity isn't there because you're missing all this other stuff that you're talking about, right? Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that's an interesting part of the conversation. They've obviously gone on to do you know even more impressive things since then. But um, 
so I guess, um, you know, again, one of the reasons like the episodes we did with yeast, um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was just to, you know, help brewers be more educated about, you know, what's going on and um, how they can sort of influence uh, public sentiment. Uh, do you guys think public sentiment is changing and how can brewers be better advocates of, of GE to um, accomplish all these wonderful things and make, um, make, agriculture more make agriculture more sustainable and um and all of the other you know good things that can come out of this hmm. you know i talking with the brewing industry for the past 20 years the, the at least the larger brewers have always been very reticent to step into this space and so i find it actually quite surprising that um companies like berkeley east and and omega are like they've got viable businesses built in part or solely around the use of GE East. And so it makes me think that public sentiment is different than what the larger brewers have thought, or at least there's a, there's a category in there that seems to be very accepting of using GE ingredients. And that, that to me, I find, um, yeah, I mean, I, I find it surprising because there's, I think for so many years, this been this fear of, of significant pushback and maybe that's coming, but it, it doesn't seem like it's there right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think this personally, I think sentiment has improved. Um, and I think it goes back to some of what, what Steve said earlier about, you know, I think, I think there's a certain class of people who they don't really care how it's made. They, they care that it's safe. So as long as, you know, FDA or someone has said that it's safe and it's not going to kill them, they don't really care, you know, how it got that flavor or how it, you know, got that price point or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, if you guys have any, um, if, if there's anything you think that brewers should be doing to be, you know, uh, better advocates for, for GE as a, as a tool. You know, my, my own sense is that, uh, people understand that the stakes are getting really high for agriculture and food production in, in a climate change world. And, I uh, you know, the, the surveys that I've seen suggest that people in the U S are worried about GMO, I think just because of the stigma, also because of, you know, the sort of the Monsanto effect that all the bad public relations, the the bad brand that they developed over time, which is one of the reasons they don't exist anymore. Um, you know, I think that we have that with us, but I, I think Americans more and more are, you know, we need tools, we need success stories to help deal with these incredible stresses, be it, be it the floods or the heat domes or the diseases that are in the news, you know, headline news all the time now. And I think as long as you can explain the reasons that this makes sense to do, as well as the the safety part of it, I, I think Americans are just much more practical in general. There's always a, a portion of them, and here in Oregon, we have uh, probably more than most places that are just, you know, I don't want this. It seems unnatural. Don't give it to me. But I think the majority of Americans are just open on a case-by-case basis to what makes sense and why it makes sense and what scientists have to say about it and, and so forth. So uh, I think things have shifted because of climate change and just the more pragmatic w- uh, way that Americans process things. Yeah, I was going to agree 100% with that. I feel like the American sentiment is very pragmatic. I think of like the adoption of the electronic vehicles in the U.S. and when in 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I remember as a kid growing up in California, it's like the, the prospect of, if you if you wanted, or even maybe just 20 years ago, if you wanted to buy an EV, it was like buying a golf cart, right? So <laughs> you didn't really have the performance that you would you could get in a normal uh, fuel uh, powered sedan and now we see that okay here's a here's an option that makes complete sense and if anything it makes a more positive sense from a um at least climate uh, emission carbon emission perspective and people are adopting it and i think yeah. i think people will will do the same thing if if you offer them an alternative which is safe and there's an increased value at some point. Um, I don't think the Americans out of principle, and, and this is an overgeneralization, will resist that. I think they, they, they have taken a much more pra- pra- pragmatic approach. Let's say you're both in an elevator with somebody who doesn't understand any of this stuff, but just knows that they hate GMO because it's bad. Uh, so you got like, you know, I don't know, 60 seconds to convince them otherwise. What do you say? Steve, you want to tackle that? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, 
I'd probably say something, and I'm a scientist. I work in this area. And uh, they trust me, I'm a scientist. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's really complicated. You can do a lot of different things with GE and you can solve a lot of problems. And sometimes like with any technology, you can create more problems, but we have a really careful, intensive regulatory system to ensure safety. As far as science is concerned, no one's had even a runny nose from a GE crop after, you know, billions of meals and billions of acres around the world. Uh, it's not a panacea, but you know we have incredible stresses facing the world that are going to make it uh, increasingly difficult to grow crops at all, whether it be hops or other crops. So we need to look at solutions and science and GE is an important way to get science out into agriculture and the food and the, and the drinking system to create uh, sustainable solutions and we should be open-minded and give it a try because it can do good things. You know, we need research. You know, these methods are hard and, uh, but they pay off and you can see that in, uh, you know, commodity crop agriculture. If we invest in the research to make gene editing and, and GMOs available to the beer industry, it's already happening on the, on the yeast side and it can happen on the, uh, on the, on the hop and barley side, if we if we choose to, we just need regulations based more on science and less on fear. And that process is going on, and we need to sort of see it through to completion, so we can uh, uh, get rid of unnecessary barriers to innovation and 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 some of the possibilities we've talked about. That was Tom Shellhammer and Steve Strauss here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you missed the Brewing Summit in Providence, you missed hanging out with Steve and Tom, as well as a whole bunch of great discussions and beers. But you can put the next Master Brewers Conference on your calendar now. That's October 6th through the 8th, 2023 in Seattle. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop and